0: welcome 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 this is the distraction pieces podcast episode 359 part 2 um i hope you all had a lovely christmas um and en- enjoying this this nether region <laughs> that's not the term i wanted this kind of period in between christmas and new year that just kind of lingers and you don't know what day it is well you don't need to know what day it is all you need to know is it's distraction pieces podcast day and i've got part 2 i mean part 1 many people have agreed with me has been the best episode of the year and part two only gets stronger in my opinion so you're gonna love this um rather than going over to my patreon over at my patreon you've got 12 free video episodes and all sorts of other stuff and over at speech development com, you've got jumpers you've got t-shirts you've got all sorts of things rather than going to any of them if you're sitting there thinking oh, I'm, oh i fancy getting a bit of a getting my spend on look at a load of the charities who need you more than ever at this time of year but this year shelter and other homeless charities are great examples because i did a a, a a homelessness podcast a while back with a few great charities three years ago i think if you just search distraction pieces homeless special um you'll you'll find it all but this time of year homeless people see the most charity from the public and that's wonderful but it's also tough because in reality in the uk at least in january in february it's actually colder than in december but people have their charity moment because it's christmas and then move on obviously a lot of people won't have been having their charity moment this year they won't have been having their walk home and see a homeless person and give them money when they wouldn't normally or give them more money than normal or whatever so if you can go out of your way to donate and help people that that need it then that'd be that'd be awesome my my patron ain't going anywhere the merch isn't essential the patron isn't essential there's other things that are far more important so yeah anyway i've rambled on long enough we're gonna wrap the year up guys we're gonna round the year up in just two parts and this is part two so this is part two of the 2020 roundup. Obviously, I'll be back next week with the Films of the Year podcast, as always, the first episode of the year. I've also got some fantastic guests already recorded for next year and some special bonus episodes for you as well. Um, So yeah, let's wrap the year up. This is me and Blind Boy on the Distraction Pieces podcast. As I said, before we get on to the, the, all of the lockdown stuff and the, the pandemic stuff and, and some election stuff, one thing that I wanted to you you may not have seen it, but I wanted to ask a film I saw just before lockdown started was Calm with Horses. And it's, oh, yes, it's an Irish film. Fantastic. And I just yeah, thought yeah, it was yeah, absolutely yeah. amazing. And I've not, I'm, Very doing, good. I'm doing my Films of the Year podcast. And I wanted to get your kind of thoughts on that because. To me, it just told this amazing story, but I'm also aware that I've not experienced rural Ireland in any Mm -hmm. great depth. So I wasn't sure if it was, you know, basic or or whatever.
1: I know the film, uh, let me double check the fucking author's name now. It's Colin, because I I read that as a short story before I saw it as a film, uh, Colin Barrett. So it's from a collection of short stories by Colin Barrett. Yes, and
0: then Nick Rowland, T- took yeah. it on and directed it and yeah just amazing people
1: all around and i yeah so i'd read the short story and i'm like wow this is incredible it's that do you know man to be honest rural rural in ireland just think of a, a a town in the north of england that used to have a mine yeah you know it's yeah. it's that it's that type of thing it's something used to happen here and now it doesn't happen anymore and now a lot of people are just standing around and yeah. there's quite a bit of generational trauma too It's that feeling. And there's quite a high level of silence and a high level of suicide and a high amount of tension. And the things that matter are very focused on this small space. Like it's, I come from Limerick, which is, it's a city. It it wouldn't be a city by British standards. Like it's only 100,000 people, but it's a city by Irish standards. And it's the same shit. It's that small town. If you can get out of Limerick, then you've made it. If you stay in Limerick, then people are like, you haven't made it. Huge amount of suicide, huge amount of addiction. The film absolutely nailed it. It captured the the, the acting in it was fucking fantastic. How um, how how do you feel
0: Cosmo's accent was? Perfect. Because I felt it was flawless. Because weirdly, you gave me a load of advice on Irish accents once when I was auditioning oh, I did. <laughs> for an Irish character in a Deadpool film. Um, yeah. And I was, I was DMing you and you were giving me loads of good little dialect tips. So... Watching Cosmos, like that see to, to me that seems flawless. So I was keen to, yeah.
1: I, I'd give it ninety nine percent. It it yeah. really, really. There was only one or two. Mo- I tell you what. I was about forty minutes into the film, and I was like, "Who is this Irish actor? I've never seen this dude before." <laughs> yeah. You know, and I work in TV. Surely, because I, I knew Barry Keoghan, of course. Yeah, and I'm like, "Who's this dude?"
0: And then I found because, out because he's not Irish. Because everyone else was at some point in love hate. Every great exactly. Irish actor at some yes. point popped up, in yes. even if it's right at the end, or like Barry, or anyone else. So yeah, I can
1: understand it. You're like, where's this guy come from? <laughs> he nailed it. He nailed it. It's, it's perfect. It's, And I was then talking to Colin afterwards about the... Because I'm looking at getting my short stories, trying to see about getting them turned into either a, a TV series or whatever. I'm in that oh, early, nice, early development. Yeah. And I was speaking with Colin about... You know, who were you working with? What was the process like? Because the director and the screenwriter, it's one of those rare occasions when watching the film was exactly how it was in my mind when I was reading the short story. Yeah. So they completely nailed it. Um, it's a beautiful film. It's fantastic. I
0: fantastic love it. Fantastic film. I love it. Well, um, you know, so the other things in March, so, so Italy were the first to quarantine. Yeah. And lockdown. Tom Hanks and, and Rita Wilson getting Corona seemed to make America take it seriously, which yeah. is a bizarre thing that it took yeah. the, the granddad of America kind of thing to make him go, oh, hang on, this is real. And he got it in Australia. So you'd been out there at that point or just before that. He then, got
1: so. it in Australia, yeah. Uh, I, I just left. This is going to sound uh, dark, but it's a shame that so many of the celebrities that got it got such mild versions of it. Yeah. I think that was very poor PR for coronavirus.
2: Yeah. I completely. I, like agreed. it
1: was it was good like I remember when Idris Elba got it, and Idris Elba's wife got it as well, and he was doing his updates and he just got a really mild version of it. And it was good for my anxiety because now I'm we didn't know what this thing was. So there yeah. was a point where I was really terrified of this thing, and then when I saw like Tom Hanks was in hospital a little bit, but I don't think he needed to be. I think the disease was so young that they kept him under observation. But then Idris Elba got it and he's like, I'm at home. Uh, I've got the sniffles. It's fine. I think a lot of people saw that and didn't take it as seriously. Yeah. I mean, the one person, there's a a, a singer called John Prine. John Prine died from it. Wow. So, but he wasn't, he wasn't public about it. John Prine was a, a country singer. I mean... Our entire Not not only our understanding of the fucking coronavirus, man, but our entire understanding of, of diseases has changed so much in that time. Like, I remember being in, in London in March, and it was about a week before Britain had officially taken it seriously. Mm. And I remember thinking, if I just don't touch anything, I'll be okay. And now we're in December, and I know that science has shown touching things really isn't that important. Yeah. You have to cover your face, yeah. that it's transmitted through the air. So... What it's done for us as a society, I, I'd like to think. I think here is one thing, and this is this is I did a podcast on this. So I remember growing up, and whenever I saw Japan or China on TV, I was always struck by news reports, and you'd just see people in the subway, and and one or two people were wearing face masks. Yeah, and this was a thing growing up that it's I associated completely with Japan or China, and I always remember thinking, "Fuck me, that's strange." And I knew it was because of disease. I knew that was the reason. But here's the thing, and it comes to individualism versus collectivism. So in Britain, Ireland, US, we live in societies which are individualistic. As a whole, we tend to think of ourselves and what we can get for ourselves. Whereas in a lot of Asian countries, they're collectivistic. They tend to think not so much of themselves as individuals, but as part of a community, okay? It
0: it often also comes down to countries who have religion. And again, I'm not saying that religion is a good thing, but uh, we've seen it so much in the Western, less religious world, or the version of Catholicism that that fits with our everyday lives. Let me take it back further. far more individualism.
1: Yeah, go. I'll take it back further. So when I used to see people in Japan wearing masks as a kid, I used to watch and think, wow, those, those people must be very hypochondriac. I used to think that they were wearing masks so they wouldn't catch something. Because from an individualistic yeah. culture, yeah. I'm worried about what can I catch off someone? Whereas in Japan, it wasn't, I'm not worried about catching a cold. I have a cold and I don't want to give it to someone else. Yeah. But my individualistic way of looking at myself and the world wasn't going there. And they did a, an anthropological study Basically, cultures whereby the staple food is rice tend to be collectivistic. And cultures whereby the staple food is like wheat or potatoes are individualistic. And the reason is, in order for a a village to grow rice, it requires everybody to chip in. So everybody must, you can't just grow a little bit of rice out your back garden for yourself. Right. Everybody must collectively work on the rice paddy. To create enough rice for everybody. So everyone must collectively put effort in. And cultures and countries where rice is the staple food, they tend to be um collectivistic in how they think. But then in cultures whereby you've got potatoes, wheat, things like that, individualism is how we yeah. tend to think about ourselves. Wow. And even in Japan, and and there's there's certain like mental health issues and stuff that are unique to the West that you you don't get in the West, but you do get In Eastern countries as well, because mental health issues come about not necessarily the human brain, but how we as individuals relate ourselves to society. So there are certain disorders that are in Japan that you wouldn't find in Britain or in Ireland or America. And it's just, yeah, it's individualistic versus, versus collectivistic. So Asian countries, when it comes to put on a mask, why? So that you don't give it to someone else. They've had that shit nailed for years. But for us, it's been a huge issue. Why wear a mask? Trying to get people to think, wear the mask not for you, but for someone else. And if the other person wears it too, you're doing it for each other. We had to change our entire mindset to get to that space now. You know what I mean?
0: It's fascinating because again, an an example on my notes in March of individualistic kind of outlook and Mm -hmm. it took the individualistic mindset for the brits to start taking it seriously so boris spoke about look i've been in hospitals i've been hugging people with coronavirus i've been shaking hands with people with coronavirus now what we should have been outraged about there is the risk he's taking for everyone else yes spreading it around a hospital Mm -hmm. that's mind-blowing but Mm -hmm. people kind of as usual there was outrage but largely l- laughed it off a bit because it's, it's Boris. What made it hit home is when he then had to be hospitalised for coronavirus, yes. and that's individualistic. Mm-hmm. That That's us going, mm-hmm. oh, we could get that. It's not us looking at, well, he was doing all this hugging and stuff. He could have spread it and we don't know about it. It's gone, he's been doing all this hugging stuff and he caught it. Therefore, yes. it's, it's, it yeah. could affect us and we all have to be more careful. And that's yeah. a perfect example of, of of what you said there, the outrage and shock should have been, even if he didn't catch it, he could have spread it. But the, the outrage came when he was hospitalized. And again, I think it's good. You spoke about people getting it badly. I think it's good that he got it quite badly and had to go into Mm -hmm. hospital and had to be, again, I don't want anyone to die to get a message across, but it was good that someone had been so casual about it Mm -hmm. was then. And again, I genuinely think it affected at least briefly his, outlook on things because when he spoke about it after he'd got over it he seemed to be a bit more man you know Mm -hmm. what i mean we need to do this seriously i think that that changes because i think again the powers same as i was saying about the president the prime minister isn't actually as powerful as as we like Mm -hmm. to think so i think when financial issues and economic issues took over it went back to being ah it'll be fine but i -hmm. think initially i think it hit him more as well to kind of go right we need to lock down properly we need to wear masks we need to be stricter on all of this and yeah
1: but that's one thing it's one thing that always fascinates me about Britain is post-war Britain is this lovely jewel of socialism right Right. like if you think of something as like the NHS like when the NHS was founded in I think it was like 1940 something like the 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 opening document of the NHS is a beautiful document It, it, it appeared in papers and it's just like Tomorrow your National Health Service exists. And this means that everybody, no matter how much money you have, is going to get free health. And for this to happen, we're all going to have to pay a little bit for it. And it's a beautiful document. But the conditions for something like the NHS to happen, and we said the widescale building of, of council houses, I think it's because Britain for the first time ever, because of something like the Blitz, had become aware of, oh, fuck, we nearly got annihilated. We Mm. almost lost to the Germans. We almost lost. And that shock of individualistic fucking pain made the British powers, the rich people in power go, maybe we should try a little bit of this socialism stuff. Maybe everybody should have healthcare. Maybe everybody should have housing. Because if you look at the history of council housing in Britain before... World War Two. the first ever council houses that were built in Britain were in 1919 by Neville Chamberlain and it's quite it's like I, I love the concept of council housing I love the idea of being able to give someone a house if they can't afford it I don't think anyone should go without housing healthcare, or education if they can't afford it I think everyone should have access to these things in a compassionate society and if you look at the history of it in Britain so in 1919 what happened was the military did a survey of the health of its soldiers' performance in World War I and quite a lot of uh, English soldiers in World War I came from like the poorer parts of London or poor parts of Liverpool. And what they found is that English soldiers were less healthy in combat than their German or French counterparts because they grew up in squalor, right. in slums yeah. with very poor nutrition. So Neville Chamberlain, wh- what took... Uh, the first council houses was to be built wasn't an act of compassion for people who were living in slums. It was how the fuck do we get better poor cannon fodder for future wars. Yeah. You know it's what amazing. I mean? Which is which is it's it's one of these things as well I always remind if ever I speak in my podcast about Irish history and the the historical fight we'll say between Ireland and England and England English occupation in Ireland, I always say hold on a second, this isn't about English and Irish, this is about power structures. Because yeah. the very wealthy elite of, of Britain didn't give too much of a shit about the poor people of England and Britain either, no more than they give a fuck about the poor people of Ireland, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Or, or you did a, f- a fantastic, s- some fantastic shows about it that were on 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 iPlayer. Or my BBC. I I yeah. yeah, your BBC stuff. And that yeah. was yeah. was looking at housing and kind of the structures of capitalism and mm-hmm. and. and And how disgusting it is. So
1: I went around the richest part of fucking London, man. That was my uh, Blind Boy's guide to housing. You'll get it on the BBC player. No, Blind Boy Undestroys Housing. It's on the BBC iPlayer right now. And yeah, I went around this area in London called uh, Billionaire Row, which is quite close to where all the embassies are. And there's all these buildings that are worth like 60 million and no one lives in them. And when you trace the money so much of it is like global criminal money. Like in these areas where you've got the embassy of Morocco, embassy of there, you've got these other buildings, no one living in them, far and apart. And you can't trace the money. It's all shell companies. And it's effectively huge money laundering for usually Eastern Europe and people trafficking. Wow. Very fucked up.
0: It's mind-blowing. And what's equally fucked up is the mindset that we're kind of trained into as working class people, because I remember as a youngster, there were certain places that we'd go on the way back. We'd drive a different route to go past all the amazing houses. Mm -hmm. And we're not driving past angry or furious that these houses, that there's so much more wealth just around the corner. We're driving past going, isn't it wonderful? Look at all these amazing houses. And we should have been angry. We should have been going, oh man, then we get to our street and there's, there's a homeless guy outside the Tesco's who yeah. I see all the time, and there's yet on the way home we've gone past these this yeah, street upon street of of
1: millionaires. One of the, the tricks that capitalism plays on people's minds, um, in in Britain, in the fucking in the UK and in Ireland, is it teaches people that you're not poor, you're just a millionaire that hasn't happened yet.
0: America was the best at it. The American yeah. dream was one of the best bits of market in ever made yeah. exactly that it's mm-hmm. it's made us not You're resent temporarily poor because that could be us soon at some yeah. point that'll mm-hmm. be me therefore it's okay and it's acceptable rather than ign- acknowledging the structures that mean it's probably never going to be you and even mm-hmm. if it is you it's temporary it's it's not mm-hmm. going to be that, mm-hmm. that 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 long-term yeah a rich versus wealthy type, type so what have we got after march april i don't remember so, these months Yeah, but again, there's not much. There's there's Biden beat Bernie to the Democratic seat.
1: Um, Disappointing. Predictable. Yeah. That's one of those ones. You're just going, democracy isn't real in America. Like, clearly, Bernie Sanders was the right choice. Yeah. You know, if the Democrats are supposed to be the party that represent, we said, the middle class of America or people who are poor in America, Bernie Sanders was the right choice. And you just go, no, he's not. Because they want to. They want to maintain the same fucking power structures and Barney might be a little bit too radical.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, America was the first nation to report 2,000 deaths in a day. Again, I think we can all agree that they handled it. America and England, I think, handled it.
1: And Brazil, man, Brazil. Were the
0: shining examples of the bad handling. And yeah. Brazil. yeah,
1: Brazil really fucked up too.
0: Well, in, in May, just... Jumping forward into May because I think we—it's it's a really important point that I hope doesn't get overlooked in this mad year. Because again, I said at the start, what we're probably going to talk about is the election and the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Even me, who'd made these notes, completely forgot to mention the killing of George Floyd and everything that it, yeah. it, that came as a result of it. Um, the, the 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 positive and the, and the negative, but the positive for me was seeing the unity and the outrage across classes, across communities and the outrage not remaining on s- social media for a mm-hmm. long, long time. Outrage has been fenced into to social media and there's been amazing hashtags and movements. Mm-hmm. The me too movement comes to mind that, that existed on social media and had genuinely powerful impact because it has mm-hmm. started change in the film industry and things like that. And it's caused people like Harvey Weinstein to be mm-hmm. l- locked up. But still, for most individuals, it existed on social media as a movement. And then lawyers, other people like that, could action it and take it on to the next step. Whereas the the death of George Floyd and the resulting B- Black Lives Matter protests and vigils and all these other things brought so many people into the real world and it felt that your outrage couldn't be contained to social media anymore it wasn't enough it it clearly wasn't enough to be outraged on social media so mm-hmm. how was that from where you were and what did you kind of see and and think of it all i guess
1: um again like look i'm in ireland so i have no context whatsoever for what's it like to be, what it's like to be a black person in america and to face that to face violence like that as part of everyday life for for the police in america not to be someone who helps you, but someone who can potentially kill you, even if you call them to help you, you know? I have no frame of reference for that. So for me, with a situation like that, I try and do, I try and shut the fuck up and listen as much as I can because I don't have a frame of reference for it and listen to it. I think with America, anything, like I often think, I often think about how racism was fed to me through American cinema, right? growing up yeah and i look back at films we'll say like american history x which i thought was wow isn't this a really good fi- anti-racism film isn't this fantastic uh, isn't this a good thing to like and now as i listen to more and more uh, black people in in ireland england and america speak about their experiences i realize that that films like american history x they I'm not saying they're harmful, but what they do is is they just, they make white people feel okay. They say to, to white people that being a racist means having a Nazi tattoo, having yeah. a shaved head and outwardly using racial slurs and being a full on Nazi. Huh. And as a kid, when I was watching it, I was going, yeah, I'm not a Nazi. I'm not a Nazi. I don't have a shaved head. I don't do that. And it's the the buck at what a racism is stops at that point, yeah, and then we'll say things like microaggressions, things like uh racist beliefs the the form of racism that's much more subtle goes uncalled and unchecked, and then yeah. white people get to decide what a racist is, and our version of what a racist is is and I think in america too it's it's classism yeah. like in America, they would look at a skinhead Nazi and go, well, that person's white trash and I view myself as middle class. So, and the only difference is, is that that person will say a racist slur out loud in public, but I'll just say it at home and quiet. Yeah. Yeah, But the racism still exists. It's just they've decided which is socially acceptable racism and which is unclassy racism. Yeah. And... The only way to find out about th- that stuff is when you listen to people who experience racism. You have to listen to people who experience microaggressions, who experience the subtle racism that I'm never going to see because I'm a white person. I'm never going to spot it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, like as an Irish person, I'm privy to little bits of it if I'm in Britain. Like I know what it feels like in Britain where someone just starts laughing at the way I pronounce words and, and little phrases like uh, beyond the pale, which has anti-Irish sentiments going back 200 years. Right. As an Irish I person, know that. Yeah. yeah, like in in, in um, the pale is, is the area around Dublin. Right. So historically, the English, like like 500 years ago, the English had control of Dublin, but anything outside the pale was considered savage. So when someone oh, wow. says beyond the pale, what they're yeah. saying is, that area beyond Dublin with all those savage Irish who can't be controlled. And I only hear, I I only really hear posh English people say it. And then when I hear a posh English person say it, I'm like, wow, you got that from your granddad and they got that from their great granddad and their great granddad probably was in Ireland fucking killing Irish people. So as an Irish person, you have a tiny, tiny little insight into what's called microaggressions. But when you listen to black people or Asian people, and they talk about the little things, the little signals that the small racisms that they experience in their lives that I can't see at all. That's the stuff that when you talk about it, moving out of social media and becoming part of a, of a wider conversation, that's what I have my ears open for. Yeah. You know, I'm not looking for where are the blatant white supremacists that I was warned about in American History X. Yeah. It's where is the racism that I could be doing in my life that I'm not even fucking aware of? Do you know what I'm saying?
0: Well, oh, that was the key thing there, was the comfort of looking at yourself openly. Yeah. And and, and and weirdly, trying not to be too judgmental of yourself. I know that sounds so prissy and, and, and careful, but trying to go, right, no, look, because if you're too j- j- judgmental of yourself, then you won't accept it. You won't mm-hmm. accept that you've had things that you need to correct. You'll go, all oh, right, Exactly. Well, that was wrong. Yeah. That was an error. So... Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing, and the thing I found as well was realizing that you can't just walk away from from social media and go, "Oh, your job's and my job's done." Exactly. I felt exactly. it was a case of going. I, I did a podcast with a professor and a, a doctor who were both experts on the kind of things around the defund the police movement. Mm-hmm. And the point of that podcast was, I was like, right, I want to talk about this and discuss it and understand it more rather than just exactly. go. I've seen a couple of posts about it. There you and go. And I agree. But the couple of posts I saw about it, even those changed my view of what it was. Yeah. So surely I should talk to someone more than just read a couple of posts and go, oh, I thought there's one thing. Turns out it's this. If I've learned that in three scrolls of an Instagram post, there's probably a. L- A lot more as well that I can learn and take in and understand. And therefore, a lot more that others can learn and take in and understand.
1: Because if, yeah, if you don't come from a community where the police are dangerous to you, where they are not protecting you, then a phrase like defund the police, you're just not going to understand it. No. You know what I mean? Like, how can I understand what defund the police means to someone living in the south side of Chicago? When I, I don't... In Ireland, the the police are there to protect me. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I don't come yeah. from a, a a marginalised community in Ireland where the police are a threat to me, you know? So when you say defund the police, I'm like, it sounds like, what? Get rid of the police? Why would you do that? Whereas in yeah. reality, it's like, no, what is referred to as policing right now, that's not policing at all. That's that's institutional violence on yeah. communities who are at the bottom of the institution.
0: Yeah one of the best examples that made things clear or got it through clearly to me of showing the difference in the experiences I've had, even though they haven't been ideal with the, 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 the police over the years, but completely different societally was someone just said, I saw it online and I, I used it in that podcast. Um, no one's ever written a song called Fuck the Fire Brigade or no one's ever written a song called <laughs> Fuck the Paramedics because <laughs> the paramedics and the fire brigade brigade are generally seen as this amazing service if the police is on a sliding scale of that even to be polite about it then there's something wrong
1: yeah and it just
0: summed it up so simply and beautifully it's all right yeah you think of the police the fire brigade and the ambulance service as three together the three emergency services yet one clearly stands out here which of these is not like the other kind of thing and it's yeah it's a mad one
1: yeah I, th- yeah, I think with that, like, whenever I get asked what that, my 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 response always, I just say, I'm listening. I try yeah. and listen if I can. Like, and not just in America, we'll say, in Ireland, we'll say the, we've, the Irish travelling community in Ireland, they are, they get police brutality. And then, black and brown people in England as well, you know. Mm. There was that Stephen Lawrence stuff in London ages yeah, ago, the course. London riots. It's, it's all the same systemic problem, you know.
0: Yeah, completely. Um, I was about to make a, a point off the back of that as well, but it's, uh, it's completely gone.
1: So say, oh, no, yeah, no. The, I hope my vape isn't too loud, man. The
0: point was to say that it's, it's also the important thing is realising it's not over. We've, we very much build, because, of, because we like rewards and pats on the head, we've built a goal-based society. So mm-hmm. what people could mistakenly think here is, right, America has got rid of Trump, done. But as you said, Biden and Kamala Harris aren't the answer. You,
1: you can yeah, look and say... You look at Kamala it, Harris's fucking... Her history within prisons, man, that's really exactly bad Exactly, the shit. police
0: force and prison, her history is terrible. Yeah. You could look and say, we've got a black... Or they've got a black female vice president. That's amazing. But it's like, yep, but let's look further than that and go, it's a black female yeah. vice president that has done a lot to, d- to damage those exact communities that we were talking about who have bad relationships with the police and with the prison system. So Mm -hmm. there's more work to be done. And I think it's weird.
1: I think Biden's just there. Biden makes people who aren't marginalised feel good at night time so that we're not worried. That's what Biden's going to do. But if you're a marginalised person, I mean, I'd like to know what's going to happen with... Okay, so when Trump did get into power, he massively funded ICE. You know, he really did put a lot of funding into being quite aggressive with immigrants in America. Yeah. And he definitely did that. And they had a a campaign of deliberately finding people who are right-wing leaning to become ICE officers. Mm -hmm. Is Biden going to roll back the ICE thing now, you know? Are we going to have children in cages, children separated from their parents under Biden? Yeah. I I haven't heard him say anything about that, you know?
0: No, no. And and to be clear, anyone, I... I wonder ICE IS, is the is essentially the immigration s-
1: service. Who, immigration yeah, control enforcement, yeah. Control enforcement which flourished and, under Trump.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um well just as as we mentioned the kind of the goal-based g- gamification of society, how do you feel about that continued thing because I was thinking about it, it the other day I think social media changed it a lot because we we've gamified our lives in that we want Mm -hmm. likes it's 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 the mario gold coins and now likes and retweets but i went out for a walk last night and again i like to pop on a podcast and go for an evening walk Mm -hmm. and i used to just enjoy walking but now i'm checking my steps and i'm clocking my steps and it's this continued we've turned ourselves into characters in the game i still i still enjoy the walk i think but i can't help but go i'll get to the end of the day and go Do I want to walk or am I just going, I've not had many steps today? And again, it's a positive thing in the long run because it's all, it's good to be
1: active. In the long run, yes. But it's still, it's a weird fucking scary thing. It's the problem. So the problem isn't the process. The problem is the gamification. Like I tell you what, man. So I do that. I go go for my run and I have my Fitbit. But before I had a Fitbit, I used to just use my phone. And I remember going for a run. And I forgot to press the button that recorded the run. And then when I came home, having done a fucking 10-kilometre run, I didn't feel as if it had happened because I hadn't recorded it and I had an empty feeling and the feeling of accomplishment was gone. That's
0: interesting because out here I've started running because I've not got, there's obviously a pandemic, there's no gyms, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But one of the things I've tried to do on my run is not time them. Because again, in reality... I know if I'm pushing myself, I know if I've taken it there easy and sometimes I need to take it easy. Listening to your body. Uh, listen to, to, to my body. And a mate of mine who's got into to, to running recently heard I'd been running and asked for my times and I was like, I think I'm doing this much in roughly an hour or trying to get under an hour, I think. But that's yeah. more from just gl- glancing at my phone as I press p- play on the playlist. It's not from actually tracking it.
1: You will probably stay running and enjoying it longer yeah. because you're doing that because you have to enjoy the process. If, yeah. if if it's all, like I've gotten to a point now, so I, I monitor my sleep. but And it's a good thing. I like that I have a Fitbit and I can get a report on how well I'm sleeping. Yeah. But now I wake up in the morning and I go, right, how many hours did I actually sleep? And I'm trying to beat my targets with sleep. <laughs> the one fucking escape is sleep. I can't go on Twitter when I'm asleep. But now I'm gamifying my sleep. You know, it's tough because... Where th- that's what the human animal is. The human animal requires rewards consistently yeah. and continually. And the only way around it is mindfulness. Like for you to go for a run and to decide I'm not, you know, monitoring it, that you've made a mindful decision right there to go, no, I'm going to stay in my body. If I'm exerting myself, if I'm breathing heavily, I'm doing a good job. Fuck that. I'm going to concentrate on the run
0: yeah ex- exactly that but again i know it's it's been a conscious choice and do you listen to podcasts when you're running the air i don't at the moment no i'm listening to music again like when i used to run yeah music i, for I used to listen to podcasts because i felt with yeah. music music gives me a get out point mm-hmm. i can tell myself in my head i'll keep going until the end of this song and, th- and then i need a breather i need mm-hmm. to i need to walk for a bit i'm tired mm. whereas podcasts don't give me that I have to yeah. just say, right, I'm going to stop.
1: You'll find yourself stopping. Yeah. Yeah. So w- what I do is when I, go to the, when I go to the gym to lift weights, then I will listen to a podcast. And when yeah. I run, I listen to music.
0: Yeah. W- one thing I wanted to talk about, and again, we're not going to go through everything in every month. So mm-hmm. there's probably a lot l- less time left in this conversation than it may feel like, as we're technically only in May. Um, <laughs> w- one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the violence that 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 came in these protests and mm-hmm. it's something that I struggled having conversations with people about online because mm-hmm. online is a tough place f- for nuance and I'm not 100% against v- violence as a solution. I think it, sometimes mm-hmm. it's a necessary solution. More often than less, it's understandable at the least. And a lot of that came from having a Carla on at one point and him talking through the amount of revolutions that have come from Bloodshed. The amount of mm-hmm. positive changes that needed bloodshed to happen. I mean, we spoke about the end of slavery. That didn't happen because mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln said, oh, it's all over now. It happened because of much bloodshed, and then much bloodshed had to continue after slavery technically ended, mm-hmm. but was still – I mean, we've spoken about, about the police force. It was the birth of the police mm-hmm. force. So what's your kind of outlook on that? Because I know you're, so, you're, you're, you're big on history, so I know you will know that, that – Violence isn't always the answer. I'm not saying that at all, but sometimes it's a last resort that is a, is a needed result.
1: So, okay, if I, I'll talk on this, um, not from lived experience, but something that's more, we'd say, relevant to me, because I, I want to be, I, I like, I like, I said, I can't speak for the experience of of black people in America because I don't know it. But we will say last week, last week, right? Ireland is celebrating 100 years of independence for the 26 counties. So last week we had the one hundred year anniversary of what was called the Kilmichael ambush in County Cork in Ireland, right. and basically, and I did I did a podcast on this. So my grandfather, my two granduncles, they were would have been about nineteen just a hundred years ago. The events of the film Win the Shakes the Barley. I've, I've,
0: I've never heard the term grand uncle
1: by the way it makes br- perfect really? sense i understand yeah. it but I, i've what never do you heard of what said. Do you go- i don't know i've never really thought
0: about it i guess I, I've never really your grand your grandfather's brother yeah i guess i guess my grandparents didn't have br- br- brothers <laughs> or didn't have brothers i knew or and it's yeah it's a weird one <laughs> just grand continue, and grand aunts I don't want to take you off, off track there, but that was...
1: The, the, <laughs> film, the film The Wind That Shakes the Barley by Ken yes. Loach yes. with Killian Murphy is, is loosely based on my granddad, my granduncles and their friends in West Cork 100 years ago. It's about oh, that wow. area and what happened. So we had this weird situation in Ireland where we don't know how to, I don't want to say celebrate, remember the Irish War of Independence 100 years ago. Like in Britain people wear poppies and stuff like that but we don't have that in Ireland because it means my grandfather and granduncles were in the IRA, the Irish Republican Army Yeah. and 100 years ago in Cork what they were living under was Winston Churchill had sent these British soldiers into Ireland known as the Black and Tans. We viewed these British soldiers as as the, the SS. They conducted themselves the way that the SS would have conducted themselves. One week previously 100 years ago they had Gone into a, a Croke park. So just today in Ireland, we had the All-Ireland Final for um, Harling, right, mm-hmm. which is an Irish national game. 100 years ago, two weeks ago, the All-Ireland Final was on as well. And the Black and Tans British soldiers, they went into the stadium, 60 of them, with guns, and they shot 80 members of the crowd and wow. killed 14, including children, for no reason other wow. than... Terrorism, and this isn't thought in British schools, but straight up terrorism on a civilian population. And Winston Churchill deliberately did this because he was like, let's send a force into Ireland that terrorise the people so that they then turn against any idea of independence. The thought of it. it uh, wow. Churchill also did it in Kenya in the 50s with the Mau Mau rebellion. But it's this concept of terrorise the population and then the, the idea of independence becomes impossible and terrifying. So my granddad, who was 19, he wasn't an ideologue. He was simply, had seen his neighbours being shot dead at that time in Cork, that the actual law was, the actual law, if any young man put his hands in his pockets, he was to be shot. That To even put your hands in your pockets, whatever it meant then, was you could be an enemy combatant, so you're to be shot. So my grandfather and... and 30 other of his friends, they shot 17 British officers in an ambush, in the Kilmichael ambush. And these were auxiliary kind of, they would have been World War I veterans, mercenaries as such, who were in Ireland for to get a lot of money to literally terrorise the population. So I'm left with this situation. How do I remember my granddad? Because I'm not really into violence hmm. and I'm not like up the rat or anything like that. But how do I remember that ambush that happened 100 years ago. And what I choose to do, I'm not filled up with a pride of like, well, hey, my granddad fought the great British Empire. What I do is I remember a sadness. Mm. I think to myself, isn't it very sad that my granddad, who was 19, who was a farmer and his brothers had been put in such a terrible situation where they're watching their neighbours being shot dead, where they're watching their neighbours' houses being burnt out by a terrorist force, that they are now, essentially forced to fight back and to take human lives because they have no choice. So, that's kind of where I have to go with it. It's like, I'm not wearing a poppy. I'm not remembering bravery. I'm remembering the sadness of, wouldn't have been nice if instead of my grandfather being in a situation where he's ambushing British soldiers at 19, instead that he just got to be a cow, a farmer and milk his cows. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's sad. So, that's why when I see the protests in America and I see the anger of black people setting fire to businesses or when I see the Black Panthers, I said this to Spike Lee when we weren't recording, in Ireland when we saw the Black Panthers, Black Panthers used to terrify white people in America. They don't terrify Irish people because when we see the Black Panthers, we understand that. Yeah. We I see the Black Panthers and I go, that's my grandfather, that's the IRA. These people in their communities have been put into a situation where they must defend themselves or else they die they become victims of a system that's against them and I can do that
0: again though that again it's the it's it's the community thing there defend themselves and their community it's 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 saying exactly am I, am I one of the the strongest or biggest not just to defend myself I have a responsibility yes. to stand up against against this
1: yeah. And it's, it's a difficult conversation to have. And then as well, when I say it on my podcast and I have British listeners, because in Britain, like it, it's... Or oh, the mere mention of the
0: IRA. Exactly. It's, I've, I don't think I've ever heard it referred to as the Irish Republican Army. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because that, that humanises yeah. it. That takes it out of this, this boogeyman term of the IRA.
1: That's what it is. And like them but the, the crazy thing is the memorial down in West Cork that's there for the Kilmichael ambush, what what the what the stone says is command post West Cork IRA Brigade, uh, 1920, 28th of November, and and on this road too died seventeen terrorist officers of the British Army. Wow. Because it's it's not as black and white. And I can also say this while being utterly abhorred by we'll say IRA actions in, in England that would have anything that targets a civilian population. So yeah. it's a complex situation for anyone. In the same way that I will get British soldiers mailing me saying, Man, I'm I'm doing humanitarian work. Yeah. You know, it's a real complex conversation, but I don't like dividing it into into kind of into black and whites. So that's the context that I use when I'm trying to understand. I don't look at people rioting either on the streets of London or on on the streets of America against a power that oppresses them. And I I don't judge them. I say to myself, what a shame that they have been failed so many times by politicians, by structures of power. What a shame that initial attempts through peaceful means to get what they needed haven't been met. Because it's not about getting what they want, it's needs my grandfather in West Cork a hundred years ago, he didn't want to not be shot by British soldiers for putting his hands in his pockets. That's what you need. You need to not be shot by British soldiers. And in in somewhere like Derry in 1970, where Irish Catholics were marching for their human rights and now all of a sudden the fucking, the paratroopers decide to to shoot a load of them because they're marching for civil rights in the 70s up in Derry. Like, those people didn't want civil rights. They need it. If you're to live in a society, you need access. You need to be able to vote. You need to be able to do these things. Black people in America need to live in a community where they can be fucking safe to simply exist. And right now they don't have it. So if I see black people in America setting fire to a police car, I'm not fucking judging that. I understand where they're coming from, you know. Now I don't, not my lived experience, because I grew up in Ireland, in in independent Southern Ireland. People up in the north of Ireland, different story. They had British soldiers on their streets.
0: Yeah, it's it's madness. You 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 mentioned a a kind of a n- a nuanced memorial there. It's it sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. But it actually has stuff on there. In in June, the the Edward Colson statue was r- ripped down in Bristol yeah. and thrown in the water.
1: No, I'm a hundred percent for that man. Meet fucking him. rip the statues down. Apps, go for it. That's a statue, man. That's symbolism. That's iconoclasm. Go for it. Take There's down the statues. I
0: because I wanted to talk to you about because, again, yeah. people say, oh, you shouldn't tear down statues because we should remember our history. It's like statues have nothing to do with actual history. History can be learned in classes, but equally, I've sat in a pub in Dublin with you and a friend of yours and had a history yeah. lesson. You know,
1: yeah. it, <laughs> it, it, it can be learned socially in the, pubs. The, the two in the morning Irish lads talking to the English lads saying... Yeah. Let, let us tell you what really happened. It's
0: fucking amazing. Like, like yeah. These are the places that history should live and can live. Yeah. It doesn't need to be celebrated in a statue. That statue isn't teaching anyone about the ills of the British Empire and, and, and the history that Britain has in slavery exactly. and all these other things. So, so
1: I, I think taking down statues, that, that's a that's a really good way to direct anger because yeah. it's frightening and symbolic to the powers that be and blood isn't shed. I really yeah. like that stuff. That's Personally, though. I think it's better that you simply remove the statue and put it somewhere else where it can be recontextualized because some of the statues are beautiful as pieces of art. Yeah. Even if it's a beautiful piece of art about a bastard, always like, I, I don't like art being destroyed. So... Take the statue away, don't worship it, put yeah. him in the, Put it in the Museum of Cunts yeah. and go, here's, here's some <laughs> lovely statues of dickheads and here's the things they did yeah. and recontextualise it. But in Ireland, like we have a huge history of that, like every street in Ireland used to be named after some British lord or British admiral. I mean, we had, there used to be a statue of Queen Victoria in Dublin. Because like, cause Dublin, people have to remember, Dublin 100 years ago was Britain. It was under British rule. Yeah. So there was this huge statue of Queen Victoria. Now in Ireland, Queen Victoria, we call her the Famine Queen because she was the Queen of England when the Irish famine was happening. So half Ireland lost two million people in this famine. And it, most people in Ireland view it as an act of genocide on the on the Irish people. But we we're not too fond of Queen Victoria. So how we got rid of Queen Victoria's statue is... A lot of Irish people in the 1840s when the famine was happening, the whole population was starving and what would happen is, if a starving Irish person was to steal some grain from a landlord, that Irish person was sent to Australia uh, as a penal colony. it was it, 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 it was quite similar to the prison industrial complex in America, whereby in America, they have laws that deliberately target marginalised communities. Yeah. And then it becomes very easy for a marginalised person to end up in prison. But then the prisons earn money for having more prisoners. So it's this toxic system. So in the 1840s in Ireland, it was quite similar. Britain was expanding its, its colonies in Australia and it needed labour to do this. So if a starving Irish person did something as simple as steal grain or steal a pig, then fantastic. Get onto a ship, fuck wow. off to Australia and you're never coming home. And they did it with a lot of uh, English people too. A lot of poor English people were sent. That's why Australia is, is seen as the land that was founded by convicts. Yeah, It was the first prison industrial complex. So when we got rid of the statue of Queen Victoria around 1950, that statue that used to be in Dublin is actually now in Sydney. So, oh, but wow. we sent her, we sent her on a ship. She, her statue did the same journey that Irish people had to do.
0: That's beautiful. And it was, That's it it's in lovely. itself, it's, right?
1: Yeah. It's, yeah, it's symbolic and it's a nice statue. So the, uh, the statue of Queen Victoria wasn't destroyed. It's just, we're Ireland. Where the Republic of Ireland is independent now, we don't want this statue anymore. Australia's in the Commonwealth. You can have her, and let's send her on the journey symbolically that many Irish people had to do under her mm-hmm. rule. And now she sits in, in, in Queen Street, I think, in in uh, Sydney. Lovely statue, recontextualised, and the Unionist people in Australia. Some of them are happy to have them Some some of them are not. But a statue wasn't destroyed, and it's a great symbolism, iconoclasm. That's what yeah. that's called when you when you destroy statues.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um I mean, a lot of these months is just going to be, there's there's coronavirus stuff. But one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the, albeit potentially brief, redistribution of respect to areas that previously had lost them, and whether that be the clapping of the NHS or mm-hmm. the genuine respect that sh- shop workers started to get in your mm-hmm. supermarkets and stuff like that. The reason I wanted to mention it to you is I've mentioned it once or twice on here because, and I'll, I bastardize the history and the, the story mm-hmm. in some way, but uh, when I had, had Rutger Bregman on, um I love his book, yeah. A Utopia for Realists. He spoke of when in New York, the garbage men went on strike and within three yeah. or four days, the city fell apart. They bowed to all of the demands yeah. and the garbage men became... Kind of known as the fourth emergency service, they now yes. earn a good wage and they have respect because it's a job that's actually needed. Whereas mm-hmm. in Ireland, around the same time or a few years later, the bankers went on strike and they yeah. remained on strike for many yeah. months and then just kind of had to come back because the Irish people went. And again, it's mad that bankers are paid more than anyone, yeah. yet the garbage men. Like you'd see, like I know as a kid that people would be like, the, the idea of gr- of growing up to be a bin man. Oh, that's, that's yeah, disgusting. That was or, the growing up to work in a shop, even. Like, even that, even... Bin man or retail. coal man. Yeah. So how's that been in Ireland? Because, again, that brief bit of history that in Ireland has said the bankers went on strike, and the Irish kind of just made agreements amongst themselves. They kind of made people mm-hmm. in the community the banker. did.
1: didn't of- put enough, We didn't put enough fucking bankers in jail, unfortunately. We needed to do that because yeah. they really did fuck over the country. But, I mean, in both Ireland and the UK... I love seeing any anything that respects workers. Like my mm. my mother, my mother worked in in Duns, which is the equivalent to Tesco when I was growing up, yep. and she packed shelves and she had to deal with rude customers and she had to deal with nice customers. Good, good underwear in in Duns. I know when we tour, my, yeah. my guitarist would always stock up I on underwear not, in Duns. Today, man, today <laughs> I went in and bought nine pairs of underpants in Duns. Good and underpants. underpants. Man, good underpants. And. But like, so I grew up with a respect for people who work in the in the, in customer service and things like that. And anything, like one thing that gets my goat in Ireland is the government love to blame young people around coronavirus. They love to say the young people are causing it. And then you go, well, isn't it the young people who are also working in shops? Isn't it the young people in their 20s who have to expose themselves to the public and work Mm. there every day. They're not necessarily just always partying. So I'd I'd like to think, I mean, retail workers are really going to come out quite fucking shittily as well after coronavirus, man, because like retail has been going. The past 10 years, high street retail has been going and we've seen that because of the internet and coronavirus has been the, the death knell of that. Like, what have we seen there in the past month gone? Uh, Jack and Jones, right? A What's your man's name? Philip Green. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all there's of, every, of every company
1: yeah. that F- Philip Green owns, I think for the UK, it's it's worth something like eighty thousand jobs. It's really, really big. But a lot of high street shops have gone.
0: I think it's given a lot of wealthy people like that a good excuse to to yeah. to, 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 to to cut things because there's a lot of retail who have done better than ever online, yet, you know, can go, well, we're going to have to get rid of all of these people and not look like a cat because of the coronavirus.
1: You're dead right, actually.
0: Particularly particularly as the government, who have got a lot of friends like that, stopped Mm -hmm. the furlough scheme for long Mm -hmm. enough for loads of people to be made redundant and then Mm -hmm. brought the furlough scheme back to go, well, all these more high-end jobs, we're going to have to lock down again, we're going to have to bring the furlough back. So I think there's a lot of, fucking shady, horrible, behind-the-scenes shit there. Most definitely. Which, which happened within a few months of the of the virus. I think there was genuine panic from the governments around the world at first, and then there was, right, how can we spin this? How can we work this? The same as she said with nine eleven. What, what What can we get out
1: of this? Ja- Jamie Oliver got some flack for that, man. Right. Jamie Oliver got a bit of flack. Jamie closed all his Jamie's Italian restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite early in coronavirus. And a lot of the critique that I saw was he didn't really need to do it. It's just mm-hmm. Jamie's Italians weren't doing as well as he would have liked. And here's this perfect opportunity to shut it all down.
0: Yeah, because they'd been famously struggling for a while, hadn't they? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, man, I'm, I, I tell you what's going to fascinate me is, is like, what what is the world going to be like once coronavirus is gone? I, I reckon... Now, what the fuck do I know? But I, I'd say within six months time, things are going to start feeling a bit normal again. Once they really start getting those vaccines out there, things will start to feel a bit normal. And there are positives of coronavirus. One thing for me, that the environment, I think it's a good thing for the environment that yeah. a lot of people are not getting into their cars every morning and are not going to work. And even more and so, not,
0: not getting on planes.
1: Not getting on planes, like, Jesus, man, you know, the job that you and I have, Mm. how many fucking meetings with agents are we being asked to get on a plane for? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Like, all the time, I'm like, can you fly to London? I'm like, why are these three people in a production company want to meet you? And I'm saying, can we not just fucking do it over the phone? That's a big deal to go to London. And previously they were like, no, 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 no. Meetings happen in person. It's just how it's done. But no one's going to ask me to get on a plane to London anymore. Yeah. No one is going to do it because I'm just going to say Zoom. And they're yeah. going to go, oh, yeah, we've done that. Let's do it on Zoom. Yeah. We're now so, used to it.
0: It's, it's changed me on the podcast front. Like, I was against Zoom yeah. at the start of podcasts. I kind of, I thankfully had a load backed up. And I was like, let's see how this goes. I'm not going to start recording. I'm going to have a few a, a few weeks off from recording any because I'd rather, if we can get back yeah. to normal in a month or so, again, the ignorance of, of the start of this pandemic, if we can get back to normal in a month or so, I'd rather keep to doing them in person. But as soon as I got used to Zoom, it's great. It's no different. It's it is what it is, you know.
1: Not really. Yeah, yeah. Same with me. So there's all these positives that I that I hope. Now then, the negative of that is you wonder will employ will the employers then completely outsource the jobs. Mm -hmm. And not keep their employees on board because if you do it remotely, maybe they can access economies whereby people are being exploited and working for fucking nothing. Right, yeah. You know, so there's that problem too. I mean, every time technology comes in, man, we need to have somebody updating rights. Like, I love the concept of a lot of human labour being replaced by robots, but we must tax the robots. Yeah. You know, like within two years we're going to be able to order pizzas and a drone's going to drop them into our back garden that exists now already it just yeah, hasn't yeah. really been rolled out but I know like that's cool I'll get it quicker it's nice that a robot's delivering it but there's a human cost yeah. so if we're going if to we, if we can get robots to do this shit then you, a law needs to be brought in it's still cheaper for the fucking employer but you tax the fucking robots and that goes to universal basic income yeah you yeah, know, wow. that, that sounds, like makes perfect sense to yeah, me. And then you've completely. got people who don't want to do these jobs that they don't enjoy, but they're guaranteed a livable income and the robots are getting taxed.
0: Why it, not? Yeah, I love that. And again, like universal basic income is, it feels like something that people are finally starting to get more of an understanding of, that it's not yeah. about, oh, people are lazy and don't want to work. It's it's about people being able to have choices, to, you know, to be able to, to, to do – an example, again, in, in Rutger Bregman's book was if you've got two people going for an interview and one mm-hmm. of them is hungry because he's not eaten today because he's can't afford to, mm-hmm. the other one is going to perform better. It's not l- yeah. laziness, mm-hmm. it's just a level mm-hmm. playing field. And mo- most people, despite what Tories in particular will want you to believe, don't want to just sit around on their ass all day. I mean, we've seen that with the pandemic. The amount that people mm-hmm. were kind of up in arms at having to just stay home, the amount of issues it's caused because boredom is, a, is a, a quick thing to sink in. So, yeah. But
1: I've even had, like, earlier in my career, I, I rely upon my creativity to earn a living. Yeah. And at times in my career where I was really, really poor, if an opportunity came along, we'd say a TV opportunity, an, idea, a, an opportunity to pitch my ideas. If getting this pitch meant this is how I pay my rent for six months... The pressure of getting this job was so great that the ideas I was putting forward were very safe. Yeah, I wasn't putting forward yeah. crazy, outside the box, That's adventurous, creative yeah. ideas. I was putting forward these really basic, boring things that everyone else was doing and then actually not getting the job. Yeah, And then now, like my, my income now is my Patreon. So my Patreon is basically a universal basic income. I I know what I'm earning every time and I'm chilled out. And I get to write crazy books. I get to, I'm on Twitch now doing musicals to video games. It doesn't really earn me a lot of money on Twitch, but it doesn't matter. I'm able to do exciting, I'm able to do my job as an artist, which is to fail. I'm able to search for failure, to do ridiculous things so that I have something that's rich. But if I was 100% the next job, whatever I get next is what feeds me. I'm going to be doing all this really safe shit that's boring and not fun and not enjoyable. Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: I completely agree. I'll start to wrap things up then. Again, it was that kind of either we wrap things up now or push for another hour. Cool. It's it's kind of
1: that. No, I definitely don't have another hour. No,
0: that's fine. That's fine. There's two things I want to touch upon then. It's basically, it's looking at the pandemic as a whole and looking at, the negatives and the, and the positives. The negative mm-hmm. I wanted to discuss is the unignorable selfishness that we've seen. Mm-hmm. And I've been someone who's spoken for a long time that I think selfishness shouldn't be this dirty word. I think it's important mm-hmm. at times for our mental health, for us as individuals mm-hmm. to be s- selfish, to think of ourselves mm-hmm. above everyone else. But I felt, I felt like that's been th- thrown in my face, watching people swarm into beaches, watching people in uproar that the pubs have closed and then as soon as they're open again, going and getting drunk and whatever That's else.
1: That's like what you've described there as, as the, I, I 100% agree with you. Yeah. Of when you When you talk about selfishness, as in sometimes we can find in ourselves in a situation where you're not even able to say no to people, you yeah. know, if, yeah. if someone, and you. you and, and, but you need to say no, but you don't.
0: I've had that in the past with social events and other things where I've been like, I don't want to be here and I know that this will take a toll on me for several days, but I don't want to say (laughs) no. I don't want to say no because it'll be rude. And that's been Mm -hmm. a thing that's made me learn to go, no, if it's going to genuinely take a toll on you, then say no. You know, Mm -hmm. have that selfishness.
1: So regarding my mental health, Mm. I am selfish with my mental health in that I put my mental health needs first. Yeah, Because if I don't, then I'm of no use to my community. So by me uh, looking after myself, and that means eating properly, exercising, uh, taking time to myself, meeting my immediate needs. When I can do that, I'm a happy functioning person. So I'm actually of use to the people around me. But if I put other people's needs first, that will take a toll on my mental health. And then I'm of no use to anybody. I'm I'm not of service to my community. So within that context... It's in psychology that's actually called responsible hedonism. To be hedonistic but in a responsible way where you right. meet your own needs first because yeah. to do so then means you can meet the needs of other people. It's like being on a fucking airplane, man. You know, what's the, what do they tell you when there's a crash? Don't put the mask on someone else. you got to put your own oxygen yeah. mask on first yeah. and then you get that's to your kid's oxygen mask. But if you yeah. look after them, you could both die. Yeah. You know? I love that. That's beautiful. Well, um, I mean...
0: The positives then that have, have come out of this, um, positives of
1: coronavirus. What what do you think? What what positives are you seeing?
0: It's been some of the the content. Again, I'm a fan of art. I'm a fan of ent- ent- mm-hmm. entertainment. Again, it's. It, I've said this numerous times. We shouldn't have to put the caveat of obviously, it's not an overall positive thing. People have been dying all around the world. It's it's of a course. horrific thing that's happened. But yeah, th- 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 things like. Twitch, which you've kind of Mm -hmm. done amazing things on. I've honestly one of the biggest losses for me was when David Earl got to had to go and do his real job and make a film because Mm -hmm. I'd been watching him almost every day on Twitch and just it's Mm -hmm. that one that clicked with me and the stuff that you you do on there. Ian Lee, Richard Herring, Dan Mm Lassack. So many people have found ways, whether it be so the thing that got me addicted on on David Earl most recently was him playing fifa because he just mm-hmm. builds characters for every player he's really he'll write songs about the players he signed all this kind of mm-hmm. thing but you go on there and essentially freestyle musicals or sometimes mm-hmm. chat the times because of I the just time chat, difference, yeah. the times i've caught you has just been just j- chatting away and it's again it's great fun so yeah how have you found things like that i guess the content that maybe wouldn't have come outside of these
1: times it's, it's changed my entire, so I, I'm, I'm old school. I've been, I've been, like I started off with the Rubber Bandits more than 10 years ago yeah. and I started off, same as yourself, I don't think you or I have ever earned much money from actual sales of music, No, you yeah. know, like, uh, nor streams. So the only reliable source of income for a, for a musician or an entertainer is gigs, gigs, gigs that yeah. you can bank on.
0: It's your hustle, and essentially,
1: yeah. That's the hustle, Yeah. yeah. And uh, my main source of income for the podcast was doing all these gigs. And now that that was completely taken away from me. Because you did like a whole world tour with the podcast. uh, Oh, yeah.
0: Organised by a guy in Vancouver. Because me and him were talking about... about
1: I did all over the deck, man. I did fucking... Yeah, I did uh, Canada, fucking Australia. Um, I was supposed to do Asia. I did the UK. And actually, I got... He hit me up about doing similar. And I looked and went... I'm going to see how this goes
0: for Blind Boy first. So I'm going to send him yeah. down the mine and and see if he comes out in one piece. Because this was a guy I'd never met. Just hit me up out of nowhere and was like, "I want to book a world tour for your podcast." I was
1: like, "All right, let's let's." let's I think calm he down. just did he just did Canada, but I had I had different all all over the gaff. But like, love it. It's I I'm 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 I don't I'm not going to be doing as many gigs. I tell you that once coronavirus becomes. Once it's gone, I don't think I'm going to be gigging as much anymore. I've shown myself that I'm happier doing my thing online, looking at different ways to earn online. And I was doing so many gigs and so many tours because I was stuck in that loop. I was Mm -hmm. stuck in the loop of 10 years ago, you can't earn from streaming, you can't earn from YouTube, so you can only learn from gigging or earn from gigging. And now it's like, it's 2020. That's not necessarily the case. Yeah. There's things like Patreon. There's things like Twitch. There's all these different ways that you can earn streams of income. Because I don't like being on tour all the time. I love doing gigs that I enjoy, but I don't like continually going all over the place. It's stressful. And it doesn't help with, my creativity. I talked about
0: this with Kate Tempest in, in the podcast that will come out before this, but as we're recording this, mm-hmm. it will come out next week. Because she spoke like about exactly Like you've done that. tours, man. Yeah. Yeah, again, and it's, it's exactly that. I love... I loved every gig, which is a rare thing to get the to say, gigs are I great. But I did love every the tour. The bits around yeah. the gigs. Yeah. It's, it's everything else fun. around it. I always remember I wrote, I still got, got it in a draft folder on my computer somewhere. I wrote a letter of, of resignation to Dan Lassac on our first American tour because the guilt I felt that I was living my dream, I was literally touring America, playing my music and people were coming out, mm-hmm. yet I was absolutely miserable. I hated it. And that how that doesn't
1: help your writing, man.
0: And again, it was exactly that. The gigs, I loved every gig. That 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 hour on stage, whew, amazing. But that's yeah. one hour of your day. The rest of it was just. And again, but that's not the case. I've had tours I've loved as well, obviously. But
1: you, but your job then as a as a creative as a writer, mm-hmm. it becomes when you're stressed about being on tour. Now I do like my Australian tour that I did. I did that responsibly, yeah. as in you know yourself when you do a tour. You're off stage and then it's like, well, where's my reward? And then before you know it, you're drinking pints and then you're going to bed at four or five in the morning and then you have a hangover the next day and then you have to travel. And if you're not careful, that's a loop of just drinking and hangovers. So when I was in Australia, I was like, I'm not fucking drinking. What I'm doing is I'm doing my gig and going to bed early and I'm spending the next day exploring each new beautiful city that I'm in. And I loved it. I loved that. That's the best. That I did is the
0: best. A, 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 when my Distraction Pieces book came out, I did a book tour and I did it on my own. It was it was only around, around the UK, but I was driving myself every day, which meant yeah. I'm not going to no, drink. Yeah, it was one of the best things because I'd either explore, as you said, or I'd go and see a film in the daytime. And there it was you one go. of my favourite tours because it was that, it was like, oh, this doesn't feel as if I'm here for the gig. It feels like yes. I'm here and there happens to be a gig at the end of the day. But that doesn't feel like the reason I'm here. Whereas tour always feels like the reason you're here is this big moment. And then you've got the build up and the come down. Whereas that tour was like, oh, part of my day is I'm going to stand up and talk to loads of people. (laughs) But that's not the the sole point.
1: So coronavirus has changed my entire attitude. So what I'm going to do, I'll probably do 50% less gigs after coronavirus, focus on online stuff. And what I want to start doing, man, is travel podcasts. Some no. of my favourite podcasts I've ever wow. done have been one I recorded on like a street corner in San Francisco because I happened to be gigging in San Francisco and using like decent mics to do travel podcasts yeah. to travel the world maybe do a gig and deliver my podcast and it's about mics because ex- the problem with me is I have that the fucking bag on my head yeah. so I can't like go to Thailand and walk around the streets with a bag on my head because they don't know who fucking Blind Boy is so, and I don't want to film myself without my bag, yeah. but I can I can do an audio podcast of yeah, me just of walking around talking. So I'm going to just embrace things more and I'm going to chill the fuck out about gigs. There's other ways to earn a living and it doesn't have to be gigging. And I shouldn't be doing a shit ton of gigs if it's not good for my mental health and my happiness. I should just do the gigs I'd like to do.
0: I love that. That's beautiful. And I'm 100% gay. Crashing one or two episodes of your travel podcast because again that just sounds (laughs) amazing. Just go somewhere and have that as the as 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 the reason. I love it. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you very much for your time, man. It's been amazing, man. It's been a pleasure. And again, your podcast, your appearance on other podcasts, and your streams and all sorts of things have been one of the the key things in this weird time when we're trying to scramble for stuff that makes us feel normal. I said it's weird. I've got. Really into Twitch since being out here on my own in another country. Yeah, because it is—it gives you that f- familiarity. Like genuinely. Yeah. When David earl stopped because he had to stop for a month or something to go and make a film, he's coming back soon. My mood dropped for a few days because it had become my last process friend. of you having a friend. A friend. There. Yeah, he was there yeah. for t- t- two hours or so as I'm having my breakfast. I'm g- 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 getting on with stuff. It gave that f- yeah. familiarity. And it went. And I was like, oh man, that was one of my support devices. So I think we yeah. can't underestimate how important entertainment is, particularly at times like this, because they yeah. are our support devices. They are, our, they can be our inspiration, our mood changes, our, 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 our le- levels and balances. So yeah, I appreciate that. And I'm ex- excited for all that's ahead. I normally end by asking what's ahead. But number one, we don't know when this thing's ending. And number I'm two, I'm going to write book, you've man. Got some plans. I'm writing another book.
1: Are you writing another book? I'm going to write. I'm going to write another book of short stories. I'm going to keep doing my Twitch thing. I'm am I'm, I'm writing a play, and I've got I've got lots of stuff. I've got lots of stuff boiling away that don't require me to travel, you know. So
0: amazing. Have you got any the d- desire to write like dramas or whatever f- for TV? Because you said you're looking at getting I, some of your short stories turned into things. Is there any desire to
1: convert yeah, them yourself I, or to To be honest, when I write a short story, man, even though I write it as a short story, I, I do. I write it as if it's on TV yeah. because my background is TV writing. So yeah. I write short stories as if they're on TV. So it's one and the same, really. It's just not written as a script. But yeah. I love it. I love fucking, I love writing. I love it.
0: I, I love it. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Nice
1: one, Pip. Thanks gonna, for having me I'm on, man. I'm press stop now. Okay, I'm pressing stop also.
2: You've been listening to Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces.
0: There we go. That is it. This is my last words of the year to you guys. Once again, thank you to everyone who's supported, but a huge thank you to Buddy Peace, the producer extraordinaire, to J- Jared, our boy Jared, who sorts out um, the website uploads and all that kind of thing, so that you can, can listen to it on there or embed it or do whatever else. And, John Harris, who runs the Distraction Pieces Network social media pages and does all them cool little quote videos. I mean, I'd, l- I'd love it if his quote v- a video for this episode was this section about how great John Harris is. But we generally adore him at the Distraction Pieces N- Network. So big thanks to all three of those homies. And to everyone on the network for putting out podcasts when they could in such a weird year you know there's always been a no 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 pressure thing and i've been as proud of 2 3 of the distraction pieces network hosts i've been as proud of them for not putting out podcasts when they really needed a break from it or for making a change that they needed because that can be as hard as anything and looking out for your mental health and knowing your l- limits and when you're pushing yourself too far is hugely important. So big love to everyone on the Distraction Pieces and the network. Sh- shall I try and list them all? Jason Reed, Susie Gage. Bozzers. B- 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 I still count Matt Richards and Jim Smallman, even though they've moved on to, to greener pastures. Um, Dan Lassac, B- B- Brett Goldstein. Amy Ballman. Harry. Can't can't say I don't know I don't remember her surname I know her name isn't even 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 Harry it's Ann Ang Harrod but Harry Chris and Stew Flamesal slash seventy six slash Stu Mangan as a producer extraordinaire on some of them and Buddy piece a producer on a lot of them as well I think I've said everyone I've probably left someone off and it's hugely offensive but who listens this far into a podcast let alone. This far into the year. Thank you for tuning in, guys. I will see you next week as ever. You are beautiful. Ta-ta.